I'll tell you what, dude. I'm coming in hot today. I'm coming in real hot. I'm coming in excited to talk about Top Gun. I'm coming in just feeling good, feeling energetic. Well, it's been a while since we've recorded. It has been a bit since we've recorded. That's true. Because you were doing your Disney adult thing. And- right. So that's part of it. So I went to Disneyland with my whole family, and we also saw Taylor Swift after that. Yeah. And I've, I'm just a kind of a different person. I'm all about light and love and kind of happiness and joy now. And that's all because of Disneyland and Taylor Swift. And so I'm coming into the podcast now. I'm positive. There's going to be no negativity from me. And I'm going to keep the cursing down to a minimum. Okay. Here's what really happened. Your mom called you upset because of probably, I guess, the tongue and asshole line from uh, Risky Business. Or maybe the White Hawk Home line, Risky Business. She was very upset. Correct. She didn't specify what lines she she wasn't that upset. She just said, "Why do you have to talk like that?" Well, tongue and asshole happens first. So I'm sure she heard that and she was like, mm. "Tongue and asshole? What are you even talking about? You talked about that. Mm-hmm. You described the first sex scene in Risky Business. You said Tom eats her ass. You said you can see hole, you can see tongue and ass. I don't remember that at all, dude. I blacked out. <laughs> yeah, and then your friend Kelsey, I think it was, told you that you're too mean to me. So I think you've been getting scolded by the women in your life. Yep. She said I was too mean and that I was a little bit too crude. And she said that she would put me in touch with someone who may do advertisements for us if we ever get to a point where we have advertisements. But then she said, oh, well, you you know, you can't be talking about those things that you were talking about in the Risky Business podcast. So going to keep that to a minimum. I'm going to try to be myself, living my truth and living in light and love under this beautiful sun above us, you know, in this, on this earth, you know, this special, special, special earth. Wow, I hate this version of you. It's <laughs> but another thing too is, another thing too is, so I'm going to lose 75 pounds in two months. <laughs> and so I've been getting up. I've been working out a little bit. I went on a combination walk run this afternoon. That's why I took a shower just before the pod. Which I assume was supposed to be a, just a run. But you're like, <laughs> we made it for you, a podcast about Tom Cruise. We made it for you, a podcast about Tom Cruise. We made it for you, a podcast about Tom Cruise. We made it for you. A podcast about Tom Cruise. So you're going to lose 75 pounds in two months. That's a little bit, a little bit more than a pound a day, which is fine. I think I, like, that's what doctors say. You shouldn't lose more than two pounds a day. Is that what they say? Uh, no, they say like you probably shouldn't lose more than a pound a week. I don't think that's true. No, I think it'll be fine. I'm not actually going to lose 75 pounds, but I'm going to lose some weight. I have a friend's wedding that I'm going to go to in November and I'd like to buy a new suit and my mom's gonna like help it's gonna be like an early Christmas ah, present I was gonna say there's no way you're gonna A lose weight for a suit and then B have the money to buy a suit what is wrong with you dude why can't you just support me you never ever support me and I'm trying to be positive now and you're coming in with negativity you being positive honestly feels disingenuous like you're doing a bit I'm not doing a bit dude the thing is is I'm working out and I'm going outside and I don't need therapy I don't I've never liked psychiatry there is no such thing as a chemical imbalance in the human brain okay well we can't use this <laughs> why just an odd thing to say I mean who would say something like that <laughs>
unprovoked. Who would just <laughs> go out of their way to like say something like that? You know who, correct? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, I'm excited to talk about Top Gun. I'm having a nice time. I'm having a good day. Feeling good. Every morning this week, I've gone out on my back deck because that's where the sun comes up over there. And I do downward dog and I open my hole to the sun and I get those sun rays in my hole and it's perfect. And it really starts your day fresh and right and puts this pep in my step. Do you have neighbors? <laughs> <laughs> yes, lots of them. They fucking hate you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't do the whole thing. Don't, don't leave the whole thing in, dude. Everyone's going to say, God, Stephen can't stop talking about holes. The movie, which I do like. Yeah, we should do a Shia LaBeouf season. That would be good. I've technically already done that. Yeah, it's true. Uh, for Tom and Home, if you recall, when Shia LaBeouf did his personal movie marathon in reverse. Hashtag all my movies. Steven, for a, a good part of it, was right behind Shia. Basically, well, I was there. I went to the theater. I stood in line and got into the theater. And I spent like a day and a half, I would say. almost Insane. Because he did it for three days. And so I missed the first day. And then I did the whole final two days. What a red flag for a person to do that about their own life. I don't think so. I think I, at the time, really fucking loved Shia LaBeouf, and I was really into... Oh, yeah. You were also, you were new to New York, and you were unemployed. I was new to New York, and I was unemployed, and I was really into his whole, like, newfound artist thing and, like, doing his performance art stuff, and I, I really wish that I could have gone to that thing where he did the, um... He put the bag over his head and let people come in and, like, just, like, do whatever they want with him or whatever. Yeah, right? like, rape him and stuff, which happened. That's what he says. I guess we have to believe him. <laughs> Works both ways, Shia. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But, uh, wow, that's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty dark. Um, anyway, but I did that movie thing, and it was great. Honestly, it was a great experience. It was really fun. And if you like Google for the listeners, for Tom out there, Tom, get on your computer, open up Google.com, or have somebody do it for you, and Google Shia LaBeouf hashtag all my movies. And if you go to the images, you're bound to see a few images of someone in a red beanie sitting behind Shia. And that's me. It's me and my red beanie. Yeah. I took plenty of screenshots. I remember being very proud. Oh, yeah, you did take a bunch. I was yeah, very yeah. happy to see you there. Yeah. yeah. It was great. I mean, it was a fun experience. And it was honestly, like, fun to be around. People obviously there were insane, but it was fun to be around... I don't know, all these people who were just doing it and just like there in line and waiting around and talking about like, what do you think this is going to be like? Or Because I waited in line for a long time. How long do you think? Nine hours. Oh my God. Standing? No, you could stand, you could sit. Everyone's sitting down. Because it's like, the thing is- just, Where's the line? Is it on the street or is it inside? No, inside the movie theater. You, okay. you and I have probably been to this movie theater. It's at the Angelica Theater oh, in, yeah, yeah, in yeah, Manhattan. Yeah. Dude, you should, you should move back to New York. I would visit you more often if you lived in New York. Yeah, I do love New York. But uh, no, you were inside and then, you know, people would leave. And then like if someone left and they let a new person in, I saw people come in, snag a photo with Shia and then just leave. And I was like, and then there were people who had hired, um, I guess you've heard all these stories, but Tom hasn't heard these stories, but people hired task rabbits to like wait in line for them for, you know, hours and hours and hours. And then essentially just text them when they were right up front. And then the person would come in and tap the wow. task rabbit person out, which I thought, what a loser. If you're going to do it, do it. The thing was, I had no job, right? Like you said, I stood in line and there was like a point basically probably like like an hour, but maybe slightly less where I just I had a decision where I said, OK, I'm either going to go all in here and I'm going to wait however long it takes to wait and be here and do this thing and just like experience this fucking stupid thing that I'm doing or get out of line now and just call it a quits. 
And I think I just thought, fuck it, this is like, it's like a story to tell, which I like doing that stuff like that. I like, I'll go along with anything, basically. Like, if someone invites me to something, I'll, I'll go do it, even if it's something that I don't necessarily think I'm going to enjoy. Like, such as Taylor Swift. I didn't pay for those tickets. My whole family was going. And they were like, Seaver, we're going to get you a ticket. Do you want to go? And I was like, well, I don't really care about her music that much, but I'll go. And I had a great time. And it was fun. It was very fascinating from like a kind of from an anthropological sense, yeah. you know, way. And and uh, and uh, it was also, you know, good show, good showmanship, good good spectacle. I still don't know if I love the music. Some songs I like, you know, whatever. But anyway. Yeah. Anyway, that's a long way of saying I'm hyped. Yeah, you have a, a very fresh energy. I got a fresh energy and I am ready to take the highway to the danger zone. So, what do you think? <laughs> what do you think? Pretty good movie? <laughs> yeah, well, I, well, I want to hear what you think because I was actually, I was listening to All the Right Moves earlier since we had just released that one and at the end of it we were kind of talking about the future of the podcast and the movies we have coming up and all that kind of stuff and like what we'd seen and what we hadn't seen or you know yada 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 and you had mentioned i think i you know locked this into my beautiful good 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 memory um uh it's beautiful memory it's a good memory right donald trump he used to be the president of the united states did you know that yeah, you're really on a, on a different level right now. Yeah, you're on. You are on slow boy level. I'm exhausted from from making your show for you. Yeah. Okay. You can't talk about it like that. It's fucked up, dude. You're not that tired. You're fine. You have tons of energy. What, what were you saying though? I had. You said that you had only seen Top Gun once. The original. Yes. So I only watched Top Gun for the first time leading up to Maverick. Right. 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 And it's funny now having watched it after seeing Maverick a couple times in the IMAX. How much, obviously, Maverick's just like repurposing story beats. It's a remix. Not only do I think Maverick's a better film, I think Maverick's probably one of the best films Tom's done. <laughs> uh, like, I just fucking yes. straight up. Uh, the most of the time I watched this movie, I was like, I cannot wait to watch Maverick again. To talk about Maverick. Because like, this movie, is, is like, on a technical level, is just a work of art. Like, it's an artist in control of this, like, military apparatus for this movie. Well, Tony Scott is an artist. Is like, a true blue artist. Narratively, this movie is, like, not no, no, that no, interesting. No. Whereas Maverick, narratively, is, like, quite fucking strong. Yeah, it's great, yeah. Because, like, this movie is basically, it's, like, who was the best pilot, which is fun, but uh, in the last 20 minutes... But <laughs> even that, like, borderline doesn't matter. Yeah. Well... That gets us into a funny tidbit. So did you have a chance to watch the making of Doc? Oh, yeah. Which is like, what is it? Like two? Yeah, okay. It's two and a half hours long. It's crazy. And goddamn, nothing I love more than a fucking making of Doc. Now that we're getting into the bigger films, we're getting these, these will be more available to us. There maybe has been some of that stuff on Outsiders. We didn't watch it, but. Not like this. Not like this. This is like a 30th anniversary Blu-ray making of. It's like. Right, right. What was it? It was, it was 2004. It was like the two disc special edition DVD. Yeah. Blu-ray. I think it said DVD because it was 2004. I don't think Blu-rays were. But I gotta say, uh, Sam picked it up at the library on blu-ray and i watched it on blu-ray at home oh that's nice and i have a new television that i bought you know i had the same tv for you so did? long yeah so i've had the same tv tom since 2009 i got it when i was a senior in high school and last month i've been telling you for years to get a new tv well uh, yeah i was waiting but last month i paid off uh my last credit card and i celebrated by Ooh. buying 
buying an OLED TV, a 65-inch TV, and a fucking soundbar with a subwoofer. So I had it cranked, and I was jamming, and it was beautiful and crisp, and the audio was like, you know, it's only a 3.1, it's not surround, but it was very nice, very loud. Uh, and I was just eating it up. That's awesome. I'm really happy to hear that. You hadn't told me that. I can't believe I'm finding out about it right now. First time on the pod. That's how you make a good show. Um, that's true. Exactly right. Yeah, we don't really talk anymore. We we always talk about the fucking show. Like, that's like all of our texts are... I know, it's kind of sad. Well, that's not true. Sometimes The podcast is also like, is basically our friendship just published? This is what we've always done anyway? Basically, I suppose, for the most part. I think other times we... I mean, we get into more personal things. I don't know. Sometimes sometimes Sam's like, what'd y'all talk about? And I'm like, uh, movies. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. It's true. It's true. It's true. So what you were just saying just made me think of a great tidbit from the making of thing where they talk about how the editors were basically editing the movie. Well, I guess some some of it they were putting together kind of a really rough cut as the production was going, I think. And then Tony came in after he was done on the shoot and came in with the editors and, you know, did his kind of thing. And they showed a cut to everybody and the editors and everyone was saying it was not very good. And and, and I guess I think the quote that, if I remember correctly, Jerry Bruckheimer was saying that Don Simpson said it was like two hours of sunsets and, and no story or something like that, which... You know, it's just very funny, and it's like you can see. Yeah. You know, I know I love Tony Scott, but I actually do really love him. I think the movies that I prefer are everything like Enemy of the State. After I think there's obviously shit in his earlier stuff that I really really like, and I like Top Gun too. But yeah, I don't love Top Gun. I mean, it's iconic, and like you watch it and you go, "Holy shit!" Every image in this, every like moment and line, and the music and everything is just so deeply ingrained into like American culture and just popular culture. But I don't find myself really feeling like, oh my God, this movie's like, like I'm not surprised by the movie. It's like sometimes you watch a really classic movie and and maybe you haven't seen it in a while or you've never seen it and you go, holy shit, this is like, you know, more interesting, more complicated than like its reputation might lead you to believe. And this is just sort of like, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not that not in love with it. And yeah, and Maverick, Tap Gun 2, you know, yeah. is just so much better. And I, I do want to try to not talk about Maverick as much as possible, like for this one, but I feel like it's going to be slightly hard for us to do, but I do want to like keep it to this, but I don't know. I'm sure things will come in and out. Yeah, there's a part in that making of where Tony's talking, the script is like, you know, a quarter inch thick, like it's nothing. Like right. the relationships in the movies are just like the quiet scenes in between the flights. Which is really true. I mean, there's some shit in there, like the the volleyball scene. It's in there because he like he wanted that aesthetic of like hot sweaty dudes. It means nothing narratively. Right? Who was that photographer that he was um, talking about? Bruce Wagner or something? I think is his name. Some photographer that I don't know was like a, a yeah. lookbook of his that he really Weber. It's Bruce Weber. Excuse me, but yeah, yeah. And you can when you look at that guy's photographs, it's really funny. It's like, oh yeah, he is just doing exact like that's a seriously strong inspiration. Yeah. I mean, the film on the whole is like, it's a lot of backlit sunset dudes covered in sweat. Oh yeah. So much sweat. One of the sweatiest movies of all time. Really? I mean, it's, I was trying to think of a sweatier film and I can't, I can't think of anything like, you know, it's a really sweaty movie. Like maybe predator. Oh, predator is quite sweaty. I was going to go in a kind of an opposite. uh, I mean, this movie, obviously very famously homoerotic predator has the homoerotic, like, 
what's he what's he say you know you son of a bitch and then yeah. they do the close up <laughs> on the two veiny arms yeah uh no but i was gonna go with um body heat body heat uh right. with you know kathleen turner and william hurt which is a very centrally sweaty movie but this movie's like sweaty when dudes are just behind a desk yes yes no i know of course and the very first scene after, after the first flight they go down to like the commander's office and he's like tripping and sweat he's just sitting there oh yeah the bald dude what's that actor's name i love that guy he's um you know he's the like shithead teacher in oh, back to the yes. future who's like always pissed at marty mcfly um james tolkien james tolkien yeah is his name i don't know i always liked him he he's got a great look of that like scary kind of bald guy look, which bald guys are not normally scary looking. I think. I don't know. I think actually the opposite is true. Bald guys are usually the villain of films. You know that there's the joke in that great film um, Land of the Lost with Will Ferrell, where he's like, "We gave him the tunic of distrust." You know, just a guy in a tunic. Well, I think like other times in cinema, like the bald guy, you know, bald signifies evil. Oh, I never heard of that before. Well. It can start here. Another question I was going to have for you. Bald um, signifies evil. Who do you think would be the co-pilot in between you and I? Am I evil? You would be the co-pilot. I would be the co-pilot? You literally are the co-pilot in the podcast. Right, but I'm actually more like the guy who's like making it work. But the co-pilot is the guy who's doing all the like technical stuff behind that's, the... That's the Rio. Yeah, the Rio. Well, that's what the co-pilot is. That's what Goose is. Well, they call it a Rio. I don't know. But in my notes, I went on co-pilot, so I don't understand how you're talking yeah, I mean, I don't know. the Yeah, the Rio and the co-pilot are kind of the same thing, right? And my follow-up question to that was, what would your call sign be? My call sign, you kind of got to have like one word, right? It's kind of got to be one thing. Well, no, they got Hangman. But Hangman's kind of one... Maverick. <laughs> Maverick? <laughs> G- guy who thinks... Um, syllables are different words. Different syllables are words, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, because, you know, I mean, in my mind, I'm going, okay, Papa Steve, because it's like Papa Steve's is like a lot of my social media kind of handles. You know, technically, it's got my name in it, so that's no good. My old email when I was a child was Cowboy Warrior. <laughs> Pork chop. Has, when would that, why is that a thing? That was my nickname growing up. My parents still call me Pork chop. Oh, Okay. You would want your call sign to be like your parent nickname? Wouldn't you want something kind of different? I don't know. I mean, it just makes sense. Like, it's a good one. I guess they are given to you. You don't get to pick them. I don't really know. They never actually fully explained that. So uh, people were like, this guy's such an asshole. Let's call him the coolest thing in the world. Maverick. Yeah. Iceman. Iceman. They call him that. Okay. One thing that I did think was funny was just thinking about it, this go around, which I'd never, I'd never really, I guess, thought about it all that much. You, everyone kind of thinks like, oh, Val Kilmer's, a, he's like not really the villain, but he's like, you know, he's the nemesis in the movie. He's whatever. And he's like, he's the asshole. But honestly, he is kind of correct in every single way throughout the entire movie. Yeah. Basically, he's like, I don't like you. You dangerous. And then like he he's never I, I was watching it this entire time. And I was like, oh, yeah, everything that Maverick's doing is kind of the wrong thing. And he's kind of in the wrong most of the time throughout this entire movie. And Iceman's kind of the good guy. Yeah, well, everything they were saying in that making of they were like, yeah, everything about Maverick is the opposite of what you would expect to see in the Top Gun program. Like there is no competition for best pilot. Right. There is no, like, it's like a team activity. Like, you know, it's it's the fucking military. There's no, like, standing out in the military. Right. Which, again, I guess I don't want to step on it, but I do feel like they get into that a little bit more in Top Gun Maverick in 2. Yeah. And there's also fun reversals where, like, 
Hangman is kind of almost Maverick and Iceman, like at the same time in the second one. Anyway, whatever. We'll talk about that. Yeah. We'll talk about them more. We don't want to step. I don't want to step. Because Hangman, well, yeah, we can't talk about Maverick. But isn't that like a problem with this movie? Is like it really just feels like it exists to be the groundwork for number two? I mean, but it doesn't, obviously, because it didn't have that in mind and it didn't do that for 40 years or whatever. Um, right. It's just like I don't really feel that much of anything watching it. Like, I, I'm not really ever that moved. I mean, Goose's death is moving and there's some nice stuff. Honestly, one of my favorite parts, going back to Val Kilmer, I think Val Kilmer has one of my the best moments in the movie. In the locker room. In the locker room when Goose dies. And Maverick's in the foreground, out of focus. My, same thing, my favorite scene in the whole movie. Some fucking fantastic acting. It's really good acting by Val Kilmer. Yeah. Like, his slight reluctance, but, like, you can tell he's, like, being the good guy yeah. and, like, saying, you know, we're all... I mean, he's got captain material, like, team leader material. Right! That is hilarious, actually. It's, you do look at that and you go... This guy's, this guy's better. This guy's no, but you go, oh, now I... You know, hindsight 2020 or whatever, I feel like that you can watch that scene and go, ah, makes sense that he became General Kazansky or whatever the fuck, right? You know? And Maverick's like a test pilot. Yeah. I think that's kind of funny. But yeah, that scene is really, really good. And, and, you know, he says like, you know, we all really love Goose. It's just that masculine sort of trying to be emotional with someone, trying to like be vulnerable with someone. And Val Kilmer, who I do think is a really great actor and always really was like kind of a weirder, artsier guy. And like, you know, I mean, you, you know, you ever watch that documentary about him, Val? But obviously some of that artsier side led to him being kind of a shithead and a bit of a, you know, egotistical. Yeah piece of shit sometimes but i do think he is like a really strong actor and he gives out of everyone in the movie i think in that moment maybe gives like the best performance in the movie potentially well certainly i mean there's not a lot of chances in the movie for like emotional depth no it's a lot of like competition and jealousy and kind of like cocksure stuff but like really like like complicated emotions like having to console your main competitor right you know, staying within the lines of like Captain Lee kind of behavior. So yeah, that is like the only really complex emotional scene in the whole film. Yeah, it's a great scene. It's a great scene. I do think I will say in terms of that kind of thing, there's some good stuff with Tom Cruise and Meg Ryan after Goose dies, like that scene where they're like talking to each other in the room. And yeah, I know Tom has some good stuff there where it's like you're seeing him you're seeing him get close to that really really visceral vulnerability that he shows us in bigger better ways down the line in his career you know what I mean yeah and the vulnerability that's also still kind of the tough guy vulnerability where he's trying so hard to keep it in like you know where she's like goose would have he loved flying with you he loved flying with you you know whatever she's saying to him and she's crying and he's like kind of trying to hold it together and he does that sort of neck thing that he does you know where he turns his head and like tries to yeah keep it tight within him and I just broke into the aviation last night watching the watching the Top Gun. Watching the Top Gun. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be funny if like they had a the at the beginning and the movie was just not a hit? <laughs> well, so they wanted to name it Top Guns. And the military was like, no, no, just one. Oh, right. Well, because that was the name of the article, I think, right? Yes. So basically there's an article in California Magazine about the Top Gun training program Bruckheimer saw it and basically commissioned this whole thing. I mean, this documentary really made Bruckheimer look like a fucking hero. Obviously, he is going to look good in the making of of his own movie. Right. 
But he hired the writers. It kind of didn't make Don Simpson look that good, I feel like, slightly. No, he, yeah. I and mean, he was not in the documentary. And I honestly, I was going to fucking look this up, but I don't know when Don Simpson died. And I was curious what eventually led to their, like, split. Oh, so he did die in 1996. Well, that's why. Okay, so he didn't live, he didn't live that long. So, yeah, fuck. <laughs> He just died. That's what led to their split. Okay. Jesus Christ. I guess I knew that he died. I I did know that he died, but I didn't know how early he died. And I wasn't sure if that was the reason why. Um, Yeah, that's funny. So Bruckheimer saw this article in the California magazine. Yep. Called Top Guns. Yep, exactly. And he called it Star Wars on Earth. And so he hired two writers that he had had on staff. Jim Cash and Jack Epps. They had written stuff, they were talented, but nothing they had written had been produced. So one of those two writers has a private pilot's license, so he was really obviously into it. That's Jack Epps, right? The guy who's interviewed the most, I think? Yeah. And so apparently, like, even before they even wrote it, they like went to the Top Gun Academy to like, scope it out and see like, if it was at all possible to get a story. They did some. They went up in the fucking planes, they did some of the bullshit like little training things and mm. uh, I mean obviously they found a story even though they never really found a story they were like this is grounds for a movie and they had seen all the right moves and they were like okay imagine this article with this kid among the right moves perfect movie yeah. so obviously you know yeah. in hindsight it makes complete sense but I guess Tom was under extreme pressure he felt a lot of stress doing this because he like really needed this to be a hit I guess because Legend was kind of a bomb or like not really a success well he was I think he was trying to transition into adult actor adult uh, yeah yeah, 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 um, yeah and obviously yeah Leg- uh, Legend's like no bueno Tony Scott was pretty much unqualified he had done one film which was not a, a hit but he got the job. Have you ever seen Hunger? No. It is really good and cool, and I think you would love it, but it's like... It's got Bowie in it, right? Yeah, it's got Bowie and Catherine Deneuve and um, Susan Sarandon. Oh, she is extremely beautiful. Dude, she is insane, and she is one of those women... She's hot now. Yes, who? who she's one of those women who has maintained being, like, just smolderingly beautiful into her old age. Dude, you know that bit where Nathan Fielder goes on like Kindle or some shit and he doesn't know what to do so he brings Susan Sarandon out too? Oh yeah. And she's just sitting there like smoldering you know, like for no reason. Yeah, and just beautiful and smiling. And and that's the thing, she's so fucking cool. Yeah. Like she, she does something like that for Nathan Fielder. She's like super politically active and leftist and, and out there like banging on doors for Bernie and stuff. Yeah. And she rocks, dude. I love her so much. Anyway, The Hunger is really good, but it is like a, it's like a European art house movie, kind of. Yeah. It's very stylized, and it's so funny to think that he's... Well, so he so he ended up getting the interview for the job because they were looking for somebody who had experience shooting jets, and he had done a Saab commercial. And Saab is a Swedish car, and Saab had also made jet planes, so like it was a whole, the whole shtick was they were like born from jets. Saab is, uh, I think, famously maybe like one of the worst cars you could buy. But like they showed this commercial that he shot in the making of, and it does look good. Like it's obviously like yeah, that's very competent. Oh yeah, of course. It's funny in the in the olden days. I don't think I feel this way now, but maybe I'm an idiot and I should whatever. But I feel like there's a lot of great directors that came out of commercials and stuff. Like not in the olden days, but just like 
in the like yeah 80s 90s and maybe early 2000s and now i feel like sometimes you hear about a director directing a movie and he's from commercials or whatever and i'm like oh that person fucking sucks but it's like when it's tony scott when it's fincher when it's uh whatever i'm like oh they're they're the best filmmakers we have you know well it seemed it it does i mean i i I don't know I haven't thought about this too much, so I can't like be definitive. But it does seem like there was a period of time, and that's how you came up. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit more. And I yeah. think the like the the sort of the farm league of filmmaking has changed. Yeah, obviously, I think commercials have changed a lot because you know who the fuck has cable anymore, right? But you know what? Now I feel like people who do a lot of music videos, I see their films and they film their movies like music videos. Like, I know you're thinking of. Yeah, I know. Well, we don't have to say. You can know, say it. No, I don't want to say. <laughs> I don't want to say. Don't. I don't want to say i don't want to say don't say it it's the safties i'm trying to be positive no it's not the safties no, they're not. like the only they're like the only ones working that i'm like oh these are real filmmakers but um of the sort of newer generation you don't think damien giselle's a real filmmaker he is more you don't think greta gerwig's a real filmmaker he is more so oh well she's at the top but she's kind of in her own echelon no it's the daniels you think about the daniels i didn't want to say it. Why not? Because, dude, I'm just, I'm not trying to begrudge. How about Scientology? But that's on another level. That's on another level. Come on, You're- come on. Be realistic. I see the Daniels at the grocery store. That's true. That I go to. <laughs> true. I just think that there is a style as of late that a lot of filmmakers are using that is a kind of a music video style that I don't think translates to making a good movie. And, it, and I watch it and I go, this shit's a music video. It's like, there's not actual cinema. It's a music video. Anyway, I just think that's an interesting difference. And maybe it's because now I'm older and I'm, I'm more critical of what I'm watching. I don't know. But I do feel like there was a period of time where better filmmakers were coming out of the music video commercial world and making great movies. Well, if you think about like when the advent of music videos happened, it was probably, you know, with MTV, which I think is 1980s something. Right. So you have this three and a half minute long like proving ground like to do the wildest shit you can think of. So obviously lots of experiment. I mean, you know, digital filmmaking and digital post-color processing was really born out of music videos. Right. That's true. And what's the thing that Tony brings up in the making of thing that he's talking about where he's like, is it the thing to shake the camera? Or? Oh, so basically all of the, I stupidly believed that uh, all of the shit was shot in planes, but obviously they do have things that are shot on a, with a reprojection. So all the cockpit, like real like acting scenes when they're doing their stuff is done on a big set. They have a fake fuselage and they have a light on a big circle that could spin around to simulate the sun when they're doing rolls. They have like light on the side, light in front, projection and stuff for the re- reflections on the on Likewise, the they have a camera and so I have a little gimbal that can spin 360 to spins. Right, right, right. So all the interiors that are like, you know, them kind of like looking around acting and stuff, things they can't do under extreme duress. Where you can really, really see their face. Yeah, yeah. are done on the sound stage. And yeah, Tony was saying like the camera spinning thing is like from... From his, his work on music videos yeah. and commercials. And he's like, and it's crazy because that's always the case though. It's like music videos and commercials are innovating in technological ways yeah. that filmmaking is weirdly like not it turns over so fast it's yeah. so interesting but yeah, yeah um yeah that was another thing they talked about in the basically the edit of the film like you said was bad none of the flying scenes really made any sense narratively and so the editors had to like basically recreate these scenes out of like what is essentially stock footage and reloop all the dialogue because they're wearing masks so they like, had to like create these whole scenes full cloth they got they got wild lines I uh, had all the actors come in and do ADR yeah and it works I mean well, and, and I mean it's essentially it sounds like what they're talking about they almost like rewrote the movie I mean or like rewrote those scenes like rewrote the flying scenes to make them 
dramatically intelligible and and like they had the real pilots come in and everything and be like okay so we wouldn't do that so like we'd do that and like give them lines to use yeah. and then like feed those lines essentially to the actors and then the actors would be able to say it. and like I mean it's hilarious those, those editors the editors are really good characters in this fuck the editors are really good characters in that in that making of Doc they were saying like every available frame of good solid flying material was used they used and the producers came back to them a couple years later like hey we want to do Top Gun 2 like and he's like well you gonna go shoot the fucking planes again and he goes no we'll use a load of our footage and he's like no we used every single shot yeah yeah which is uh, what is it it's Chris Lebenz on and Billy Weber. Lebenzon. Chris Lebenzon and Billy Weber. They were quite funny and I was thinking about them a lot. Yeah, I was thinking about them in regards to you a lot as well with editing the podcast because of how, <laughs> you know, tiring it's been and how much you're, how much work you've been doing to make us sound intelligent and like gut the podcast together. That's like whatever. Anyway, I was really enjoying them talking about it and just their candor in the interviews of like really kind of shooting straight and telling it how it is and being like, yeah, the cut that Tony made was not very good and then like none of the flying scenes made sense so we basically cut everything together and added like you know whatever we made like a story out of the aerial combat sequences like my experience as an assistant editor working with editors like yeah like they're the ones really well I mean the old cliche right it's you write the movie when you're writing it you write the movie when you're directing it or and you rewrite it or whatever when you're when you're editing it or whatever right it's like the that's the final rewrite just like in the edit yeah yeah so I just uh, I really got a kick out of that I was thinking watching it I was like okay is this like a Jaws situation where like because there's so much downtime and there's so much non-shark activity they're able to focus on the story but it's like they really didn't do that they kind of like neglected the story altogether and like they really the focus was on the planes they shot all the fucking ground stuff first and all the plane shit and they had to go back and reshoot fill in some of the romantic scenes so after the fact they had to double back and they had to shoot the elevator scene where she's got her hair up in a ponytail with the hat on and he's freshly showered, which is a really beautiful, nice scene. Well, can I, because you're leaving out some good little tidbits in that. Sure. It's like they had like a full cut of the movie, right? Basically. They call, I think it's like an exhibitor screening. So they send it off to exhibitors on the West Coast and they send it off to exhibitors on the East Coast and then they send it to exhibitors basically in Chicago, which is, I guess, supposed to be like yeah. the middle America exhibitors or whatever, even though it's Chicago or whatever. And they said that West Coast people and East Coast people were like, yeah, great, we like the movie. And then the, the Chicago people were like, well, there needs to be like a sex scene. <laughs> And so then they basically were like, all right, well, let's fucking do that. And then so they shot that. It's weird that they heard about this. They heard the sex scene and then they were like, okay, let's shoot the elevator because the elevator scene does not come like directly before or after the sex scene or anything. They said they needed to develop the relationship more. So they shot that one more dialogue scene in the elevator and they shot the sex scene. So they flew in Chicago because TC was in the middle of shooting The Color of Money. Yes, yes. So she she cut her hair. And they basically were like, Marty, Marty, can we take him for like one day, one day on a Sunday and we're going to shoot this shit. They shot it on a Sunday. The elevator scene, he's got freshly showered so it looks like his, you can't tell his hair's been cut. She's in a hat. Shoot that scene. Because she had cut her hair off. Re- she had cut her hair really short. And then they do their sex scene which is like like one light kind of bullshit whatever. And that sex scene is like so stupid. Like it's... Yeah, it's so 80s. I mean they make... That, that sex scene has been parodied time and time again. Eternal. My favorite one is MacGruber. It's like the MacGruber sex scene. It's MacGruber or like literally they do it I think even with Take My Breath Away in the Dennis system episode of Always Sunny when oh, he, nice. you know, when he lays the lays her to bed. But the editors are saying like they got those dailies on Monday, the next day they on Monday at like nine a.m. and they had a cut by noon and it was like in the film to the mixer by the next day. Right. 
Like right, they right, dropped right. it. I think like they're printing it the week after. Like that was the last, very last thing. Yeah, which is pretty funny. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the sex scene is like well, it's funny because it comes out of necessity almost. But it's yeah, it's dumb and silly and super eighties. But again, it's super fucking iconic. And it's like the blue light, and they're all um silhouetted, and it's so classic. But if you think about it, probably the silhouetted aspect of it and like keeping them in that kind of light and in the dark sort of is all necessity because of the hair and her having, you know, she's probably wearing like a fake wig at that point in time. Yeah. I mean, I also think like it also looks cool. It does look cool. No, it does look cool. My problem with the sex scene is the act of fucking in the scene is bizarre. Their kissing is awful. Their kissing is like just straight up like tongues out and like barely even. It's so weird. For the whole movie, he's kissing her so strangely. And I'm like, when when he's macking on her and he's flirting, I'm like, this is my boy. He he pounds puss. He is not gay. But then when he's kissing, I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Dude, that's not this how, is you, how kiss. you kiss a guy, dude. <laughs> Trust me. That's how you kiss a guy. <laughs> um, but also this movie is like, I mean, this, this movie makes fucking outsiders look like, uh, you know, Debbie does Dallas. Like this movie is capital G gay. For sure. Which of course we'll get into that, but I did want to touch on one quick thing. I was confused about this because it's like, I think in the probably cut of the movie before the sex scene, there is an implication that they did have sex though, right? Then right after the sex scene, it cuts and she's waking up in bed and like picking up a note from him. And that seems like something, at least in in the making of thing, they didn't talk that they shot that in the reshoot because right before they have sex, they chase each other down in the car because she's mad or he's mad at her because she kind of like talks shit about him in the flight training meeting where they're talking about him. They're talking about him. They're breaking down what he did with the MIG in the opening of the movie. Right. Right. Which is like a whole thing in this, like nobody's ever come up against a MIG before and like lived to tell the tale, I guess, essentially. And well, I think basically he's saying like, I encountered the MIG to exceed what is known capabilities. What is known for. Right. Yeah. right that's true. And then he also did his 4G inverted dive. Yeah. And then inverted dive. Cause he goes up and gives him the finger, which is, you know, classic stuff. But you know, they chase him down and she's in her fucking beautiful, nice car, which what is that car? Do you know? Cause you're a car. Guy. Oh, it's a Porsche 356. Yeah, Porsche 356. Porsche, there is no other, what's the phrase? There is no substitute, which I don't want to get into Maverick, but Penny and Maverick is also driving a Porsche, but it's a newer Porsche. Which is really funny though. I know we shouldn't get into Maverick, but that did pop in my head because in this, it's like, okay, this is goofy. She's driving a fucking Porsche, but, but at the same time, she's a fucking private contractor being paid by the U.S. government, I'm sure she makes a fuck ton of money. Oh, yeah. And so on some level, I'm saying, okay, she is able to afford a Porsche. In Top Gun Maverick, I'm kind of like, oh, this is a girl who owns a bar <laughs> on Myanmar. Like, I don't really feel like her car makes sense. No. But, you know, it's just a callback. It's like, you know, it's whatever. Yeah. It's a rhyming image to quote my boy George Lucas. But um, It's like poetry, you know, they rhyme. Anyway, I just thought that was, that's just a funny tidbit because they, they, you know, so then she chases him down, they kiss, and then that leads right into the sex, like they kiss outside on the street, right? And then it cuts into blue light, you know, silhouetted. Take my breath away. That song is... Take my breath away. That's not how it goes. Yeah, no, that is how it goes, dude. Why don't you do it? Uh... No, you you know, actually, that is how it goes. <laughs> <laughs>
Anyway, I'm assuming that uh, they just omitted the sex scene and they're like, well, which is ridiculous. Why would they fucking put some sex scene in there? But what I'm saying is, is there was still the implication that they did fuck because I think that the scene where she wakes up in the morning feels like it was shot in the original production shooting schedule. Right. So they just like skipped it. They were like, they thought they didn't need it. We'll have them kiss and then have like a morning, like the implication that they fucked. But, and I'm just saying, I don't know. When I was watching, I watched the making of Doc before I... I watched the movie, you know, I couldn't remember the actual, like how the movie fully played out, you know, beat by beat. So obviously I knew that there was a love story between them, but in my mind I was thinking, man, is it really that undercooked that they had to go back and shoot like all the stuff? And then I was thinking, okay, well actually the love story is still there. It's just like the sex scene just really like consummates it. It just literally consummates it. Yeah. So the writers were approaching this as like a sports movie. Right. When they were flying in the planes, the writers like, wow, this is very athletic. These men are athletes. And so they approached it like a sports movie, which is why they had the competition element because there's really like, you know, what other sort of storytelling framework is there. And so they also, uh, they wrote in the locker room scenes and they have their like, their local Air Force or Navy like advisors. Like, why would you have that? And they gave, they gave three reasons. It establishes the sports idea. It connects audiences to sports. It allows them to speak candidly at a uniform. Like they can act ways they wouldn't be allowed to act in uniform. And they have a little level of candor. And also they were like, we're paying a million bucks for Tom Cruise. We got to see some skin. There's a ton of fucking skin. I mean... I guess it's in the locker room, I suppose, but... And in the beach volleyball scene. The beach volleyball scene, which, boy, oh boy. That shot, though, kind of toward the end, they're all sitting there, like, standing in, like, very, like, modely poses. You know what I'm talking about? It's like that wide shot where they're, like, Tom and Anthony Edwards are sitting down on, like, the bench. Val's, like, up against a pillar, one of the other guys, and it's, like, that wide shot where they're all, like, in the kind of shower area, and they're all... They've got their towels on and stuff. Normally in the lockers, we see them, and they're in the locker, like, corridor, and we to see them like you know fiddling with their lockers and getting stuff and getting dressed you know that shot that i'm talking about though right yeah that's the most like brissonian isn't the right word but it's like they're like actors as models that was one of the most like oh tony's really doing his bruce weber photography thing and they're all just sort of standing there and it's like uh, you know do you know the image that i'm talking about right yeah. you know what i'm talking yeah. about yeah we'll make it they'll make it the post image i fucking think it's a phenomenal image i really do think it's really great and you look at it and you just go boy oh boy this is the gayest movie i've ever seen in my entire life oh that's another thing tony talked about the volleyball scene was voted the best scene in movies for three years straight by by Sock Magazine. Yes, yes. Dude, okay. Let's talk about Tony for a minute too, because he is so phenomenal in that making of, and and I and I love him anyway. I I think what I do love about him is he is such a and kind of him and Ridley are both like this, but I think Tony is funnier in a way about it. They're just such like I don't know how to, I don't know how to word it. They're like they're artists. They're smart. They're great filmmakers. They kind of have a cowboy attitude to him, but he's got like a well, just like a dude attitude, and he's just like so down to earth, dude artist. Yeah, but like down to earth, straight shooting, no bullshit. He's talking about the movies very straight. Like he's like, oh, you know, Val didn't want to do the "You can be my wingman anytime" line because he knew it was corny, and he's talking about the movie. Going, he's talking about the movie that he made that he knows is a fucking masterpiece, cla- or you know, not a, whatever, like a classic movie in American cinema, and kind of he's not really denigrating but he's like this is the movie that I knew it had to be and it's like it's, it's a well he's open about not knowing what it had to be well but he's open about yes you're right when he got the job he was like well I thought it should be I wanted to make Apocalypse Now in an aircraft carrier 
Which is so fascinating because there are those shots in the like first image of the movie. It's like orange and cloudy and dark. Very Apocalypse Now, yeah. That feels like Apocalypse Now a bit, right? And then what's also really funny is in the Danger Zone music video, Kenny Loggins is like in a hotel room. Oh, doing Apocalypse Now, yeah. With a fan like over him and it's very Apocalypse Now. That part's kind of interesting. Did Tony make that video? Yes, Tony directed that video. Interesting. And what's kind of fascinating, too, is that years later, Tony would make Enemy of the State with Gene Hackman, which is like people talk about like, oh, Gene Hackman may be playing essentially the same character from The Conversation. It is a very conversation-esque movie. You know what's very interesting about that is that when when Tony was saying that, Apocalypse Now was like six or seven years old. So it's not right, like, right. like us said now saying like, yeah, I gotta make like, like, like Apocalypse Now, this classic film. He was like, it's like, it's like saying I gotta make like, you know, La La Land yeah. or, or whatever. Yeah. Like, you know, I gotta, yeah, I gotta, I really want to make the new La La Land right now in 2023. Yeah. That just got made though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you know, I mean, you can't help but like, I'm sure he's just, he's got that on his mind. I don't know. You know, I mean, he's being, but I, anyway, I just love his energy and his. But basically he's like, he admits like it had to click for him. He goes, oh no, like we're just doing rock and roll. Like we're just making yeah. fucking, we're doing like backlit fucking, we're basically in a lot of ways, we're just selling enlistments. We're just like enlistments jumped up 40% in the Navy. Oh yeah. The numbers on that are crazy. Which is a little bit like nobody in the making up doc obviously like has any guilt about that. I do think it's a little bit, Back then, it's like, yeah, I joined the Navy in 1986. Who gives a shit? We're not going to war. And then we did. Well, yeah. Yeah, not that long after, I don't That's think. That's also another element of, like, like, why I think Maverick is better. Maverick yeah. takes place in a time where, like, we're at war with the whole world. And in the, yeah. 1986, like, you know, yeah, I guess the competition would be against the other pilots because, like, we're not really fighting anybody. There's a cold war going on, but, like, you know, by that point, it's almost wrapped up. Right, right, right. Well, and I think, isn't that what's kind of... I mean, you know, that's what's kind of slightly unrealistic about these movies just in general is that I think, like, aren't dogfights fairly rare in the flight world? Yeah, like, I mean, in World War II, all the time. Yeah, But, yeah, like, yeah, I don't yeah. think there's really, I mean, we can get into the military-industrial complex again if you want to, but, like, sure. it doesn't make any... Well, I think it, I think oddly, honestly enough, it plays into Tom's career in a big way, like, throughout his entire career in yeah. a lot of ways. I mean, just in terms of, you know, I mean, I mean this and then obviously Maverick later, and then like Born on the Fourth of July, which we'll get into, and and just in general, like even like Mission Impossible. Obviously, it's not it's not really military industrial complex, but it's just like the apparatus of your government, you know, and like working for it. Um, so they've been saying for many many years now that the last fighter pilots have already been born, yeah, because you know we're entering an age where a computers can do it in the future, and b like that era of warfare is long gone. You're getting dangerously close to stepping on Top Gun Maverick. Sure. But I've seen that a lot during this, Mike, you know, the era of fighter pilots is akin to the era of movie stars. And this is really getting into the Maverick. Now you're really stepping on Top Gun Maverick. The last fighter pilot, the last movie star. Yeah. Absolutely. So I guess we'll table that one. That's a tease. We'll call that a tease. Call it a tease, baby boy. Yeah, but no, you're right. You're right. I was just going to say one, and they talked about it in the making of thing, is that I think most pilots die from just like shitty systems failure and or just like whatever shit that happens like during tests and training and blah, 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 blah. Like they're not really dying from. I have a good question about that. Who do you think is a better pilot? Obviously, Tom Cruise in this movie, not Maverick, Tom Cruise in this movie or Denzel Washington in flight. Whose plane would you rather be in? Probably Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise didn't save Goose. Yeah, in this movie. 
Yeah, but okay, I actually don't remember in flight, like, is he a former military pilot or is he purely... Maybe. Is he purely airline pilot? Because in my mind... They put him in a broken plane. Huh? They put him in a broken plane. That's what he says in the movie. Oh. I fucking love that movie, so don't... I mean, I think it's a great movie. I know you think so, too. But I'm only asking because I kind of, I guess, on some level, I sort of would rather be... I think because so many Air Force, Navy pilots go on to fly for airlines when they're older, basically. But there are obviously pilots who fly for airlines who didn't have military service. But I think on some level, I would rather fly with someone who had... I think that pilot's going to be ultimately better than just a plain airline pilot. Definitely the best way to go about it because otherwise you're going to be paying for your own training... If you try to ascend to like commercial pilot by going to the private route, you're going to be paying for your own private flight training. But I think people do that. I think not a small number of people do that. Oh, they do do it. So my family, more about me. Yeah, Jesus Christ. After we already had the podcast, that was fucking all about you. All the right moves. So so sick of hearing about you, dude. uh, All the men in my family. No, I'm positive. I'm positive. I'm positive. Love, light, love you, dude. I love hearing about you. All the men in my family on my dad's side have all flown planes. My great uncle's a pilot. His cousins are all pilots. My dad's flown planes. They've all flown planes. And I have a cousin now who is getting into like private flying. And basically his goal is to like get his commercial pilot license through, I guess, logging hours in private planes, which is going to cost him like 200 grand. Yeah, it's a lot of money. Actually, his dad was, uh, I think he flew the B-52 self bomber or he was on the plane. I don't know. I guess this is a good opportunity for maybe to me talk about my family a little bit. I would be remiss not to talk about this. And I think if my dad is still listening, although he doesn't really talk to me about the podcast much, my mom talks to me about the podcast, but also my dad doesn't have Spotify. And I think when he listens to it, he just uses my mom's. Not that I care. Dad, I don't care if you're listening or not. Big whoop. Big deal. I don't need, I don't need you. No, but uh, my grandfather was a pilot in World War II, and he also flew... For the Nazis? In... No, dude. He flew for the American side. The Allied Forces. Okay. No, he flew P-38s in World War II, and he also flew in Korea, and he flew... I think he flew only helicopters in Vietnam. Pretty storied career in the military. And he um, apparently, he was the first person to fly a helicopter in Colorado atmosphere in like the... Oh, wow, the thin air? 70s or 80s or something like that. Yeah, because because of the thin he air. He was the first person to fly a helicopter in Colorado in the 70s? Maybe it was earlier than that. But, but, but yes, he was the first helicopter pilot to fly a helicopter in the thin air of Colorado. It's only a mile up. They had never done it before. They thought the air was too thin. It was they, they fly, didn't... They could, uh, if you're, they didn't do it, dude. If you're in Florida. Look it up. Look it up. Literally look Florida it up. If you're in Florida and you fly two miles look it up, up, it's the same as being one mile up in Colorado. No, it's not the same. Altitude-wise, it is. But think about you're flying in Colorado. It's already thin air. Then you got to go even higher to fly. At that, hmm. And then what happened to him? Well, he had Lou Gehrig's disease and he died. Oh, that's right. That's why I did the Ice Bucket Challenge. 2000 or 2001. I was pretty young. I think my family has always, um, especially my dad, has always really, I mean, they really like this movie. And I guess for you, you'd never seen it. But for me, even though it's a movie that I don't really love that much, it's a movie that I've just known in a lot of ways my entire life because it was just, you know, I just feel like I watched it very passively or it was just on or whatever, like a lot when I was growing up, just because I think, you know, I have a pretty military-ish family, even like uncles and stuff who were yeah. served and things like that. My grandfather was Air Force, not Navy. So it's different. Yeah. That's a funny thing that um, you would assume, if you do nothing, you would assume this is an Air Force movie. 
but it's like actually know all the cool planes that are in the Navy. Right, right. I had a teacher. He was actually a football coach, and he's also a teacher. And he was always he said like, yeah, I joined the Air Force because I thought that's where the cool planes were. And then find out that if you want to be a fighter pilot, that's the Navy. So it's like so I was a fucking misstep. Actually. Dieter from Little Dieter Learns to Fly, the Herzog doc, yeah. he had the same story. He's like, yeah, I joined the Air Force because I want to fly fucking fighter jets, and I get there, and they don't have any fighter jets. So I like finished my time in the Air Force and then re-listed in the Navy because I wanted to fly the jets. Yeah. Well, you do a lot of bombings, I think, in the Air Force. Right. You're dropping bombs. Yeah. But the P-38's a fighter plane. I don't really know. I'm actually... I don't think it is. It doesn't look like one. Uh, The P-38 Lightning in World War II, that is absolutely a fighter jet. Oh, this is a fighter. Fighter bomber. Fighter aircraft. Yeah, fighter bomber. And that's, I think, my grandfather... 1949? It was retired in 1949. Yeah, brother. How old was your grandfather? Oh, he's dead. I mean, he was in World War II and Korea and Vietnam. So I don't remember when he, what year he was born. So he died in 2000, and this year he would have been 100 years old. Okay, he was born in 1923-ish. So yeah, he would have been 22. Yeah, he could have flown. Yeah, exactly. Wow. I know. It's crazy, right? Can we talk about Tony Scott a little bit more? Sure. Great hat. Just a tiny bit. So I really want to buy his outfits that he started to wear in his like later. Well, no, I mean, he might have been wearing them during Top Gun too. But he has like he wears like a t-shirt, short fucking shorts, and like athletic shoes, and then like a um, what almost looks like like a, a vest that you wear to like go fly fishing, yeah, or something. And he does that, and he's got his like pink hat, yeah, and a cigar, and a cigar. He's just got a great athletic fit. When he's directing, he's like, it's athletic. Like, he's on the ball. He's, like, moving, running and gunning. He's such a visceral filmmaker that you can imagine he's got to stay exuberant and athletic during his shooting. And I just really, his outfit, I think, is kind of fucking great. What I wanted to talk about was a little bit of just, like, are you, like, a Tony Scott fan? And how much of his shit have you seen or not seen? I don't think it's going to be a good look for me. Yeah, it's not going to. That's why I'm bringing it up. I actually wish for the dunk on you for a minute. <laughs> um, let's take a look here. Uh, no, no. You've got us. No, you have no. to have seen. I've seen True Romance. What do you think about that? Uh, it's, it's honestly whatever. It's kind of stupid. Oh boy, this is not good. What? You've just seen nothing. You've seen none of the late. I've seen Unstoppable and True Romance and Top Gun. Wait, seriously? That's it? I've, I've, se- I've seen Man on Wire. That's crazy, man. You've never seen, like, the Taking of Pelham remake? Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3? No. Dude, so weird. You never saw, you never saw Deja Vu? No. That's actually probably the man, man on fire. What are you talking about? Not man on wire. What the fuck are you talking about man on wire? I know what I said. I know what I said on purpose. <laughs> oh. But have you seen man on fire? No, I saw man on wire. Oh, my God. I liked it more God. by 9-11. Man on fire is terrific. The two, I would say, honestly, is my two favorite films of his, the two masterpieces. Maybe it's three. Let's say it's three. Enemy of the State, Man on Fire, and Deja Vu are the three that I really, really love. And then Unstoppable is up there also. Taking of Pelham I really, really like, but it is lesser. Deja Vu is honestly maybe kind of the true masterpiece. Like, Deja Vu is on another level. Like, Deja Vu is, um, I think, quite a profound piece of work. You know, these movies, we, yeah, we, had, we already had this conversation earlier about Ridley versus Tony, but, like, you know, we knock on Ridley for not really having the masterpiece. Well, he does. He, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to be on Ridley's case too much. But does Tony have it? Is it Deja Vu? Is the masterpiece? I mean, 
the thing that's weird is that like I think in the broader sphere of like people in the world of just like normal people they could probably point to three or four Ridley Scott movies and obviously be like masterpiece masterpiece like huge movie in American cinema obviously you have Alien you have Blade Runner and then like Gladiator probably right like those are the three that are like yeah I mean he's obviously got some great ones among that also but God damn it. IMDb is unusable these days. Like, they got the producer credits all the time first. Yeah, they fucked it all up. You gotta, like, click the director thing. It's fucking obnoxious as hell. I just want to look at his shit really quick, because, I mean, not to, like, compare the brothers. I mean, look, I know a lot of people really love Alien Covenant and really love Prometheus. I There are things about both of those movies that I like. I thought Prometheus sucked dick, and then I watched Covenant, and I was actually, no, Covenant sucks dick. Prometheus is pretty good. Oh, that's funny. I kind of maybe like Covenant better. Well, Covenant has a great, speaking of homoeroticism with this movie, Covenant has a great, like, just supremely gay but bizarre scene where they're like the dueling Michael Fassbenders with the flute and they're playing the flute and it's like super sexual right. and just really homoerotic, but with two Michael Fassbenders. And that scene, it's, it's funny, I think both movies have one scene in them that I'm like, oh, that's the movie that's worth the price of admission. Prometheus has the one where she chest burster Ooh. abortion, basically. C-section abortion. And then yes. Alien Covenant has the the flute gay scene, basically. You know what I mean? What those movies both have that, honestly, I, like, the best character in all of Alien. Right. He's fucking phenomenal. I love it. Yeah. And when you get two Davids, I'm like, oh, man, this is like a dream. Correct. I, totally, like totally. a dream I had one time. Counselor, I do kind of like in a weird way. Like, I mean, and I think that we already did. We're talking about Tony. I know, I know. Sorry, sorry. Well, I was just talking about the two brothers. But well, okay, what, whatever. So I'm just saying. I think people look at Ridley Scott's career. There's movies that people can point to and really like unequivocally be like masterpiece, 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 masterpiece. Like three or f- you know maybe four. Let's say. Tony's career, I think the thing that's odd is, which I'm a part of this, I'm, I'm very much in this camp of like, I think for the longest time he was considered the lesser of the two and that his movies were, he was almost making more popcorn movies, more just like, you know, silly, dumb blockbuster movies, mm-hmm. but with style and with good direction and whatever. I think the problem is, is in the moment when Tony was making movies, is, you know, in the, in the 21st century, this was when people were really butting up against like oh quick cutting is destroying cinema and like really really fast editing and and like not letting a shot hold for a long time which like people were just fighting against that a little bit and so I think Tony because he was of a higher profile got the brunt of that criticism which you know I think there's a middle ground where it's like if you're cutting way too much it can be really trash filmmaking but the thing is with Tony he kind of is exemplary of the cliche of the phrase every frame of painting and so I think the thing that sets him apart from the people like there's that famous scene of like Taken 3 or something where Liam Neeson jumps the fence and there's like 14 cuts of just him jumping the fence right and the thing with Tony that separates him is that every single shot that he's doing where there might be like 14 cuts in a span of 
you know, 30 seconds or less, but it's all like various shots that are all like really purposeful and all very formally beautiful and precise. And so more recently, people have started to reevaluate his movies, especially everything basically enemy of the state and beyond and really think of him as a true as a true artist. And I think they're taking the hunger into account because he made this movie like, you know, he made he jokes about it in that making of thing where he's like, you know, I was just coming out of college. So I still had the sort of like college thesis filmmaker mindset. He kind of makes that joke in the making of thing. But I think that he really is like an experimental artist in a lot of ways, just making movies within this Hollywood and blockbuster kind of action trappings. But I love that. I mean, you know, some of my favorite movies are these movies that I'm just like are kind of low level, like not very well respected movies, but I think are getting away with and doing fascinating things with the form and also maybe sometimes thematically. Anyway, that's my sort of rant on Tony. I know that was a long bit, but I do really love him. And I think I'm not the only person who says this, but I think he's finally starting to get his due and he's like a, a great artist. Because, you know, we should mention he killed himself. Right. He, yes. Maybe there's a little bit of that. But I think that people just are also responding to the filmmaking in a way that they felt like maybe they didn't quite see because of all the backlash against quick cutting and everything that he was doing. It, like, it is a real example of like being ahead of your time and people like not knowing how to respond to it. You know what I mean? And like almost the back to the future joke of like, but your kids are going to love it or something. Right. Like, the, right. I feel like I watch his more recent films and I feel that way a little bit. Yeah. And Anyway, that's my that's my rant. And, and so my point also is just that like I like his newer stuff more than I like this earlier stuff. But you see him with every with every movie and, and which is why I'm really excited to watch, which I haven't seen. I'm really excited to watch Days of Thunder. because I've never seen it in my mind. I always wrote it off mostly as like, oh, this is the Top Gun, but on wheels, you know, and like people just sort of thought like, oh, they're just trying to capture like it's like Tony Scott's casino or something like that. You know what I mean? Like he made his Goodfellas and then if, if it is that. Well, no, I know that's we, great. we don't know. That's I, great. We don't, if it is that, that's incredible, <laughs> yeah. obviously. But I feel like we'll see. We'll see if it is. We'll see if it is. But on some level, I think at the time people were like, you made Top Gun. Now you're just doing the same thing with Tom Cruise, but it's, you know, on the ground on wheels. And so I'm curious to see if that's the case. Anyway, that was me going on for a long fucking time. But Tony Scott, great. That's the point. Yeah, I mean, as far as the artistry goes, like that kind of that look, uh, not to talk about Maverick too much, but like Maverick is basically aping this look that he developed here. The backlit, lots of close-ups, golden hour kind of stuff, really giving yeah. a beautiful look at these planes. I mean, I think Joseph Kaczynski is much cleaner. I mean, his movie's a lot more, I mean, I think he's great, obviously right. does a great fucking job, but it's cleaner and slightly more sterile, I suppose, which I mean, is just a product of the time period, but. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like, if you took this idea and you added 30 years of like filmmaking finesse and like. Sure, sure, sure. Practicality onto it and you got it like a more processed version of that same idea. Yeah. I also do think what's funny about the Tony Scott thing and just the Tony Scott Bruckheimer, like, you know, Michael Bay is like a Tony Scott disciple, I feel like in a lot of ways. And like, and obviously he's working with Bruckheimer and everything too. And so there is like a, a little bit of a house look and style and feel and like things that are with the military and like an aerial shot coming up that has like a, 
little like computer typo writing saying like somewhere in Nevada or something. You know what I mean? Like there's right. so much of that in all these movies that yeah. that type of movie is just like so iconic. It's so ingrained. Like you look at it and you go, oh man, they really did for a decade or so tap into something like Bruckheimer did with kind of, I mean, with some other filmmakers came in and out of that. Like um, whatever the guy's name is who made Con Air. I can't remember. But like when I think of Con Air, I think, oh, Michael Bay directed that, but he didn't direct it obviously. But like Tony Scott and Michael Bay are kind of the two Jerry Bruckheimer purveyors. They're the Bruckheimer guys, the Simpson and Bruckheimer guys in a lot of ways. And their styles are so... They're different, but they're aligned. We haven't really talked about Tom a lot in this. I feel like we need to talk about Tom. There's some good bits in there in the, in the making of about Tom, like the dynamic of the offset activities. Like Tom didn't hang out with the crew. Right. Didn't hang out with the rest of the boys, trying to get that maverick mentality. And uh, Val. Well, and there's a funny tidbit where Val tried to do the. Uh, Val was. <laughs> you know, more leader of the pack sometimes. And Val was pranking Tom and got him a case of wine. Problem was they were shooting in the middle of an empty field. And so Val presented Tom with this big case of wine and Tom had to carry it all the way back. And Val says about Tom, nicest guy in the world, like was very appreciative of the wine and then like had to carry this lug, this 12 balls of wine across like three acres of empty set. Anyway, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, I don't have anything to say. Good. I just thought it was weird. Like you just, I was in the middle of like saying a thought and you said, actually, you know what? I'm going to say the same thought myself. Uh, no, I was just adding to it. No, you were literally going to say the same thing. No, I wasn't. I was going to add and say. <laughs> you have something to add? I was, all I was going to add was that Val Kilmer tried to do the same thing. He tried to stay away from the guys similarly to Tom and then realized. He saw they were having a blast and they wanted to go party. And then saw they were having a blast and wanted to go, wanted to go party with him. So went, went over there. Yeah. That's that's all I was going to add. Oh, hey, hey, good addition, buddy. It was a good addition. Oh. I know that I talk too much, and I know that I just went on a long thing about Tony Scott, but you've seen two Tony Scott movies, so sorry that I'm the one who had to talk about Tony Scott. It's perfectly fine. It's just, uh, it felt like I was in the middle of talking. You were, but it's a conversation. Conversation <laughs> is people talking to each other. Okay. What else do you have to say, dude? Let's hear what you got to say. I'd love to not talk for a while. Is that true? Yes. I'm thinking right now how the, usually we like we want to avoid just recounting the plot of the movies, which I think is healthy, good. But instead, we're just recounting the making of. We're just like, oh, and then they said. Yeah, but the making of is honestly like in my mind just now is just more interesting than the plot of the movie. So I had a thought about making ofs in general. There's a quote from Matt Johnson who made The Dirties and Blackberry. Talking about when you watch a film, you were really... You're watching it twice. You're watching the story at hand, and you're also at the same time thinking about the making of this film. Yeah. So in a way, watching a making of documentary, you are doing that times two. You're watching the movie four times. You're watching the story of the movie, the making of the movie, and also the making of the documentary, and thinking about like yeah. you're watching it four times at once. And I just really, I just like I, I love movies, but I love making of movies more. Most of the time, a good making of is better than the movie. I. I like really disagree with you, but in terms of this movie, I think maybe I'm no, I don't even know if that's true. I honestly, but I just think for the purposes of what we're doing and I'm not like in love with Top Gun, the movie, but I recognize and I love its iconicism, if that's a fucking word, iconography. Yeah, I don't know, whatever. Um, I find myself being sort of moved by like, oh, this is so iconic. I'm watching a scene. I'm like, you know, I'm moved by the, the meta text around it, I suppose. So in that sense, I think the making of is really fascinating, right? You know, what's a weird example of 
this speaking of apocalypse now is i think that's a one that's a weird example where like like i was gonna say i I prefer the film but at the same time it's like you are watching that one in particular you are really watching the film and the hearts of darkness i'd rather watch bird of dreams if it's Coraldo. Well, yeah, sure. But that's just because I kind of don't like Fritz Corraldo that much. <laughs> that's not like, that's good of a movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I just like don't care about it. But like the making of is so much more interesting. But the making of The Matrix that I've seen you, uh, it's like two hours long. I mean, obviously I love the fucking Matrix. Yeah, The Matrix is incredible. Come on. The making of is like almost as good as the movie. Oh, it's terrific. But it's just a different sensation. It's different. It's a different feeling. You're, yeah, but you get to experience the movie. You're watching one is, it's a, well, okay, I know what you mean. And like the funny thing is you're watching one, I think, sort of as a film goer. Right. And you're watching one as a, I suppose, hopeful filmmaker, sort of. And that sensation has an effect. on. I'm not a hopeful filmmaker, actually, just for the record. You're a filmmaker. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I get what you're saying. And I think that there's obviously like pleasures in the behind the scenes stuff. It just depends. But I mean, I think 90% of the time I'm much more interested in the film. Honestly, I think as time has gone on, I'm less and less interested in like hearing what filmmakers have to say about their movies. I mean, I think I am interested in hearing what they have to say about it on just like very like straightforward technical. There's the whole Sopranos thing where people want to ask David Chase all the time. What does the ending of the Sopranos mean? or whatever it's like i could truly care less about what he has to say about what the ending of the sopranos means like to me the joy of movies and and art and television or whatever is i'm making the me sometimes a, a stray thought or a whatever some from the filmmaker or from an actor or whatever can lend itself to to my to my understanding of the movie or whatever you know what i mean yeah. you, get, you get what i'm saying you know what i mean I yeah, I mean, I, I definitely said that, but like, I don't necessarily know if I agree with that. But there are numerous instances where the making of is far more interesting. You have said that. Like, sure. Only God Forgives. Oh, the one that his wife made? Fucking phenomenal. That one is really good. That's a much more interesting story than Only God Forgives. But I fucking like Only God Forgives, too. I mean, I fucking like that. You can get the same experience plus a little bit of... But no, you're not. No, that's fucking bullshit. You're not getting the same experience. You're not getting the same experience. The movie is the movie, and that movie, whether you like it or not, has its artistic merits, and it has its thing that it's doing to you. And the documentary is not doing the same thing. And I think the problem is, is it's a symbiotic relationship. You know what I mean? You watch Apocalypse Now, now, and you can't help but, you know, Dennis Hopper comes on screen and you can't help but see him in your mind's eye in Hearts of Darkness, like, right. fucking going crazy, being drugged out Dennis Hopper, right? So you watch that movie now, which I did see it recently on 70mm, not to brag or whatever, but a really great print, Martin Scorsese's personal print. You watch that now, and the audience is laughing at Dennis Hopper's scenes, like, but it's a very knowing laughter, because they, everyone has seen the Hearts of Darkness documentary, and they've seen the Dennis Hopper behind-the-scenes shit. You wonder if, when people were watching at the time, where obviously the character is funny, but I wonder how much they were laughing and in what way, I suppose, compared to nowadays. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, Dennis Hopper, that movie is pretty fucking funny. He is funny. That's just out on his yeah. own. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, you're right. When he dies, you say he was a kind man. He was a wise man. Listen to me. Look at me. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly different example. What? About, okay, Marlon Brando then. Because I feel like Marlon Brando, not necessarily that funny in the movie. 
But with the knowledge of Hearts of Darkness of him being a fat fucking piece of shit, swallowing a fly and like being like unprepared and like not knowing his lines and like Francis having to like feed him lines off camera. That's all very fucking funny. And I think people now watch the scene. I mean, honestly, when I saw it in the theater, there wasn't that much laughter, which I, I appreciated because people are just like watching the movie and appreciating the movie, whatever. But I still feel like there's a level of people watching the movie now, probably laughing in those sequences because the Marvel and Brando lore is there. I can't imagine laughing in Apocalypse Now. Like, people laugh at screenings of uh, There Be Blood because, I, you know, that, is, that shit is pretty that's funny. That's a f- fucking funny movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, Apocalypse Now is like, that's not, that's not fucking funny. I don't yeah, give a shit if yeah. you know the meta text of, like, Marlon Brando being a piece of shit or not. Shit ain't funny. Like, <laughs> that's, just, right, right. that's just pretty harrowing. No, that's true. Although, speaking of Marlon Brando being a piece of shit, the making of documentary for Island of Dr. Moreau, is phenomenal. Yes. Well, that was also, which we were referencing kind of a little bit earlier about Val Kilmer being kind of um, oh yeah, a bit of an egotistical piece of shit. Yeah. Because he fancied himself such a capital A actor. And, you know, in, in this making of, I was like, dude, in these interviews, Val Kilmer is so great. He's a fucking... Yes, he's he is. He's just so charming and so cute. He's so charming and so, like, just making a joke out of everything and kind of, like, taking the piss out of everybody and taking the piss out of Tom yeah. and stuff. And, like, it's really good. It's really Really, really good stuff. But then you watch his own life documentary, Val, and it's like a little bit self-serious. But I do love him. And, and some of it, it's really self-serious, but some of it, I think the self-seriousness is earned in that documentary. You know what's really good about this documentary, the making of? The interviews with Tom are like exquisitely lit. I think oh. this is 0304, so probably on the set of like Last Samurai or some shit. He's got medium length Tom hair. Yeah, probably Last Samurai. But he's looking really good. His interviews are like, he's like, I mean, but what was more interesting is that when they have the old footage of like Tom on his first fighter jet flight, he looks genuinely exhilarated like he has experienced something that like will change his life forever. Yes, that footage feels super powerful and vulnerable. And honestly, like this man in filmmaking is like a dragon he's been chasing ever since. Like he's like filmmaking must include like life altering experiences for him. Yes, he's like Adam Sandler in that way and that he just wants to make movies with him and his friends and do things for himself. Right, actually, no. It's that's not, not that's, that's the opposite <laughs> of what like Tom can't make a movie it doesn't require him like, you know, Achieving new heights personally. And Adam's like, I want to go to Hawaii with my buddies. Well, okay. Obviously, I'm incorrect. You're saying that he's doing something kind of selfishly, I suppose, on some level. Well, it's like the movie, what appeals to him is not only is actually interesting, is not the end result, but also the making of appeals to him, too. He's interested in the in the craft and the work going into the film as much as the product itself. Absolutely. that That's the filmmaker in him. Yes. Which, watching this, I was like, you know, he ends up basically becoming the Bruckheimer. Yeah. A little bit, for sure. I mean, Bruckheimer is obviously a part of Maverick. But yeah, no, you're right. Pretty soon after this, no, I guess we've got like 10 fucking films to go. But, you know, he starts his own production company and then it's like all Cruz Wagner, you know, yeah. productions. But um, yeah, I don't know. It, but I think there was even, you know, in the behind the scenes stuff, like didn't Tom come in and kind of, before he just signed on to the movie, he worked with Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson a lot to like, I don't know, talked about the movie a lot and like kind of helped. Basically, it sounded like he was not into it and they were like, just come ride the plane. And he did. He went down, he had a ponytail. I guess he was like, kind of like, you know, coming off of uh Legend. Oh, legend. He was he was in Legend. He which which he looks like a little baby boy, and he's got like his long hair. Yeah, yeah and then he rode in the plane. And he was like, okay, uh, yes, I cannot wait to make this fucking movie. Right. Yeah. Which is just beautiful, beautiful stuff. But like some of the stuff, 
I mean, this training stuff they had to endure to like, does he even sit in the planes? They had to practice ejecting, they had to practice water landing, all this different stuff. Yeah. They're like, they're wearing the full gear and they're like jumping into the water. And that made me like panic just watching it because I'm not a strong swimmer and like wearing mm-hmm. this full regalia, like boots and straps and everything, trying to like tread water in the pools made me very nervous. I'm not going to drown or anything in a pool, just for the record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, no, I've tried. <laughs> um, yeah, you know this movie actually has. Last time talking yeah. about um, risky business, Tom's first car chase. This is Tom's first motorcycle. That's true. And he's ripping it. He's ripping it. And he's going. Yeah. And the jet's fucking taking off the F fourteen or whatever. Yeah, it's re- it's really beautiful. There's a beautiful shot too when he like basically decides to quit after Goose dies, and there's the shot that's like really orange sunset. Him on the motorcycle in the foreground, and like a plane taking off in the background. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? It's a really gorgeous shot later on. And that felt like I remember looking at that and going, oh, that's pure Tony kind of. And yeah, just like like just the having the planes like cross each other in the sky and like the, the sense of speed, everything is like really just fucking great craft. I was watching this. I was like, the craft in this is fucking phenomenal. But the story just doesn't matter. Yeah. Which I think is like, uh, you know, I think in the 80s, you're watching this shit, it could be exhilarating. You're like, yeah, I'm going to sign up for the fucking Navy and shit. And what's very interesting is that in the first scene, there's a whole montage of like them setting up the planes. Like all, it's all the groundsmen of the Navy. And you don't see an actual pilot until you see Tom in the plane. It's all like the people working around the plane, which is funny because the majority of the people that He's the first pilot. signed up, I mean, one of the first couple pilots, the first scene oh, is, okay. but the majority of the people that signed up inspired by by Top Gun probably ended up being those dudes working around the planes, not in the planes. Which they kind of talk about that in the making of yeah. a bit. Yeah, that like all these people signed up and were, and then like Pete Pettigrew, the guy who was the um, the, the uh, like consultant, yeah. yeah, the main advisor consultant guy, talks about how like people would come up to him years later and be like, "I signed up fucking because of that movie, and now I'm." They got a gun. They're fucking I'm, I'm, shooting. I'm nothing. Yeah, yeah. They got a gun pointed at it. Lied to me. It's like a king of comedy situation. Yeah. Well, it's not really the same thing, but whatever. Yeah, that stuff's really funny. I mean, fuck them. If they if they fucking were that goddamn gullible to sign up for the Navy from a fucking movie, it's like, whatever. I don't know, man. I remember I watched The Aviator as a kid. I was like, yeah, I'm going to be, I'm going to design airplanes. <gasps> be a billionaire plane designer no i was like i'm gonna i'm gonna design airplanes i'm gonna piss in bottles and stay in a room forever hey you do that now no i've i haven't pissed in a bottle in a while actually (laughs) (laughs) have you pissed in a lot of bottles um no not not in a good a good pit of time my daddy's made me do it on road trips he's like just piss in a bottle do it do it pass it up pass it up and he would chug it (laughs) (laughs) They're road trips. We're not even going anywhere. <laughs> driving around for hours. Took a lot of piss. I feel like there's so much stuff that we haven't touched on that I'm like, I'm forgetting things. Oh, good old detail. Tony was so dead set on shooting everything with backlight. That's where you get that iconic imagery, and that's the best look. And yeah. uh, they're on this battleship. Oh, fuck, yes, tell this. This is such a great story. You got to tell they're this. They're on yeah. this battleship, and like Tony finally gets the golden hour shot set up, and then they reach the end of like the like available zone they can have this fucking battleship. And so it turns around. Tony's like, what the fuck? Like, I need my shot. Why can't we do this? And the captain's like, yeah, that'll cost you could 25 grand and fucking turn the boat around. And Tony's like, all right, get my fucking checkbook. Wrote a check for 25 grand, gave it to Captain, and they turned the boat around for the shot. His own personal money. Yeah. Terrific. Which obviously it's an investment and it worked out for Tony. That's such a fucking cool story. 
I'm so glad you remember that. That's that real fucking cowboy shit, like cowboy director shit that it's just, yeah. it's awesome. Yeah. And there was another thing they kept talking about in the making of um, Berkheimer, you know, they have an issue with, with like, oh, well, there shouldn't be a romance. It doesn't make any fucking sense. The, the Navy had problems with the romance aspect. Like, why would that oh, happen? Yeah, 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 yeah. And Berkheimer would always say, well, you know, mom and pop in Oklahoma, they want to see that stuff. Oh, yeah. That's a good tidbit. Which is just, you know... Bruckheimer's always talking about the mom and pop in Oklahoma. Which, fucking A, dude. That's what makes him Jerry Bruckheimer, yeah. you know, basically. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff like that in there where just, like, all the consultants and the military people were, like... Oh, they wanted to have an inner collision, but they were like, no, 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 no. You cannot have our planes crash into each other. That is not allowed. Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. Well, how yeah. can we have a crash with no no impact? And so they come up with the idea for the, uh, the jet wash, which is where Tom ends up, like, basically... Yeah, what the fuck happens? I actually don't know what happens in that scene. The consultant went through every crash. They had data on. And it's like, where are the right. non-impact crashes? And basically, I don't know what a jet wash is, but I guess it's like it's like a vacuum or it's a blast of air. It interferes with Tom's plane, causes one of the engines to fail. They hit a spin, and the spin throws Tom's body weight forward. He can't work the fucking controls anymore. He cannot correct the spin. But because oh. the Rio is more centered to the plane, his body weight is not being thrown forward as much. He's able to grab the ejector handles. And what happens yeah. is that traditionally, what's happening is a vacuum above the plane. So they say, uh, yeah. when you're pulling the ejector, pull the top hatch first, let the hatch fly away, and then pull your thing. Yeah. So the mistake that Goose makes is he pulls, he doesn't wait long enough for the hatch to go away before he pulls his seat, which is why he hits the hatch right, and he dies. Right. He hits and he busts his fucking head, yeah. busts his, well, yeah, whatever, he dies. Right, right. That's right. That's right. No, I, I I knew what happened in like in terms of what made Goose die. I didn't quite know if I got like the actual what happened with the failure of the plane, basically. Something with jet wash, whatever the fuck a jet wash is. Basically, they're like, what on earth could happen to where... Someone can crash through no fault of his own and no impact. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. Yeah, there was just a lot of stuff like that, though. Where it was funny in the making of thing where so many of the pilots and Pete Pettigrew and stuff were like kind of making fun of, or like, you know, laughing at some of the stuff that they were like, okay, well, fine, I guess. Yeah, just do that. And it made the movie better. It's fun to see them be like, you know, we just knew that that's the way that it was. And it, and they, they had the right ideas to make the movie better. We never talked about the, the Quentin Tarantino Oh, yeah, thing. yeah, let's talk about that. I don't actually remember what his like whole theory is. Oh, you don't? Basically, whatever this movie is, Tarantino's an actor in the movie, and he's basically telling somebody to party yeah. that Top Gun is a metaphor for a man struggling with his own homosexuality. Right. And basically, Iceman and all the Top Gun pilots are saying they're the gay way, and lady character, I forget her name, is the straight way. And the whole movie is a struggle between the straight way and the gay way. They're trying to pull them to one side or the other, which is why like Tom and her have a scene where they don't have sex, but then the next time he sees her, she's dressed like a man wearing the a baseball hat, hat, hair pulled right, up, right. and that's what gets Tom to fuck her. Mm. Which, I mean, it's like a funny little Tarantino-like theory, like, you know, you like that stuff when it pops up in his movies because yeah. it's kind of like his insider kind of pet theories, more or less. But it's obviously doesn't make any sense knowing that that elevator scene was shot like at the zero hour. Well, sure. But I mean, I would even say even despite that, like that elevator scene doesn't happen right before the sex right. scene. The theory is cherry picking some stuff. It's a fun theory, but like it doesn't really hold up. I, I mean... 
but also the movie is pretty fucking gay. So like the movie is very homoerotic, but the like one for one kind of like this happens and this happens and that's gay and that like that doesn't fully add up in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. like in terms of like being able to write like a thesis essay, I don't think you could really do it in my opinion. Yeah, he's, he's the same thing in Glorious Bastards where they're playing the uh, heads up game where like you had a thing in her head. Is oh, like, the King Kong. Am I, thing? Am I, yeah, the King Kong is an allegory for like slavery in America. That one kind of works in my opinion. It does, yeah. but I'm sure you could like if you examine yeah, it, you could yeah. probably poke some holes yeah. in it and shit. No, but, it's like, true. But yeah, I mean, that scene has almost become classic in its own, you know, right. And it weirdly has become, I think, the like ipso facto reading of the movie just purely because of Quentin Tarantino's pop cultural relevance. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, it's like there is no other reading in the movie because there's nothing really to read. There's nothing really to read. Yeah, I don't I don't think it's it's homoerotic and that stuff's funny. How kind of I think now everybody's leaned into it slightly. I think Tony Scott, like the interviews that we get with Tony Scott in the making of thing, he's kind of laughing at it and he's making jokes about it a little bit. But I don't necessarily think he was like trying to make something gay at the time it's really the only way to make this to make it subversive right because like this movie is propaganda this movie is a recruitment tool but like to make it subversive like yeah it's a little bit gay ha 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 no that's a good point right but but then with the laugh it takes away from any kind of subversiveness you know what i mean you know right we really didn't talk about tom this much but it's like i mean fuck it he is i mean once again electric like he's electric but (sighs) he's he's upstage by the fucking planes right but speaking of the homo, okay, okay. Actually, this is a little tidbit that I want. I forgot that I sort of want to talk about. Speaking of the homoerotic thing, and like just the sort of like this is maybe a dumb point because I don't fully know what I'm talking about, or I'm just whatever. I'm dumb. But I mentioned like Brisson a little bit or whatever, and the actors mm-hmm. as models and stuff like that. You know, there is a part of me that's like this movie is just pure. Tom, if you don't know Robert Brisson thought the actors were subhuman clay and they basically didn't call them actors, he called them models. <laughs> right. uh, did he say, is that what he says in notes on the cinematograph? He calls them subhuman clay? <laughs> I don't think, I know. Yeah, I, I know that he doesn't say that exactly that, but. No, no, actually, that's Connor's reading of it, but I, I was hot on to it, yeah. Oh, funny. I don't think he says it that cruelly. I think he just means it in a very. That one of his most iconic characters is a fucking donkey. Yeah, I think he did think of actors as subhuman clay, but go on. I just think that he was trying to get to something bigger than he was trying to bring it away from theater yeah the acting yeah. was a relic of theater he wanted to make it something yes. cinematic exactly exactly but anyway to the point of tony as an artist or whatever and and you talking about tom getting upstaged by the planes this all kind of made me think of this which was a thought that i had when re-watching the movie yesterday about like the film is just pure fetish object and the actors and the planes are photographed in the same way in many ways yeah. they're like shining and glistening in the sun i mean the planes aren't necessarily sweaty and wet but you know what I mean? Like there's like a level to the movie where the humans and the planes are like just pure fetish object in this movie that character and emotion and whatever is kind of beside the point. And I know that most people say, oh, that's just blockbuster filming, which like, yeah, maybe to a degree. But there's a level to this that's like somehow in the way that Tony Scott's doing it feels elevated somehow. I don't. Do you know what I mean? Do you get what I'm do you get what I'm saying there? It's like technology versus horse. Wait, what is that from? I know what you're talking about. What the fuck is that from? What is technology? Adaptation. Oh, that's right. Technology versus source. Yeah, that's funny. There is something there with like the human models and the plane model. The movie isn't doing this, but it almost makes me think of Cronenberg like a little bit of like the new flesh, the body and technology like melding together sort of a little bit. You know what I mean? And like these. Yeah. 
I don't know. A little bit of that. You know what I mean? Uh, sort of. Yeah, it's okay. Well, whatever. You don't have to know what I mean. I don't think that the movie actually makes those ideas come to the forefront and like interrogate those concepts, but I think it's there kind of in the movie on some level, like the bodies and plain bodies and technology. Yeah. I feel like I sound like a fucking idiot, but there's something there. There is something there. You're looking at me. I hate you, dude. Whatever. I don't want to talk anymore. No, you, you, you got think, mad at me you earlier. Think people are... Tom Cruise is plain body. Man, we didn't even talk once about Anthony Anderson or Anthony Edwards. Oh. Who is terrific. He is phenomenal. Who is so terrific. You want to do five minutes on Anthony Edwards? Yeah, let's do five minutes on Anthony Edwards. Let's talk about fucking Goose. I'm going to say again, I could not help but think about Maverick watching Goose because like it is a dead ringer from Alice Teller or vice versa. They did cast him perfectly. and like yeah, I vice- cared more about his character now having watched Maverick. Knowing the future, I cared more about it in hindsight. But it's funny because I think at the time people really were moved by and like, Goose, no, like, 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 that's an iconic thing of like how sad you are when Goose dies. Like, that's like a big moment. I watch it now and I kind of go, oh yeah, Goose died. Oh shit, you know. And I love, and I love him, but I'm just not like the movie is not making me. I felt just really feeling it. You know what I mean? I'm not really like. Really, the only thing you have is like he's smart, quippy, funny guy, but he also has a family. It's really the only issue that makes him feel like whole and human. Again, like the reason we just talked about nothing but the making of is because like the story itself, the characters themselves are not that engaging. He's decent. There's not that much to get into. You know, I guess the '80s people were fucking dumb in the 80s and they thought it was like a big deal when he died um it has been proven that people were dumb in the 80s oh they were for sure yeah dude they were all uh, hopped up on cocaine and uh they were all trading stocks and uh doing credit cards doing credit cards for the first time they were doing credit cards yeah Okay, all that being said, he is honestly really terrific, and I do think he brings a lot to that character that, as much as maybe we're saying we don't feel that much when he dies, I think we would probably feel even less if he was not playing the part. And I think, like, he has some great, like, his yeehaws are really great, his laughs are, like, when Val Kilmer says something about when they're in that first kind of, like, briefing that they have, and Iceman says something, like, about the women's room, or he makes some kind of joke. You know what I'm talking about? I don't, no, I don't remember that. Whatever, and he goes, <laughs> Oh, right, right, right. You're killing me, man. You kill me, or whatever, you know? He just has a great energy to him that I really, really do love a lot. And I've always really liked him as an actor. I mean, he's fucking great in the ER. He's obviously great in one of our favorites, which we've, I think, probably referenced already in Zodiac as Mark Ruffalo's, like, partner. They said it about him that he was the only one of the actors to go into the uh, the F-14 and not throw up. Yes, that's right. And he talks out and he goes, I guess everybody got to buy me a drink or whatever later tonight or whatever because he didn't He was the only one that said it could have been a real pilot because he wasn't puking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's funny. People have also, maybe I have some sort of soft spot in my heart for him too, because in later years, in my in the vein of Taylor Swift, in my baldness era, we'll call it my baldness era. So like, like 19 and on or what? <laughs> you kill me, man. You kill me. Um, when did you first shave your head? You committed to it. Oh, not until New York. So when I was yeah. like 25, 26. No, but uh, anyway, people have said to me multiple times, like, you know who you remind me of? That actor, that guy, that guy from ER. And I'm like, oh yeah, Anthony Edwards. Like people have said they think I look like him a lot, often. I've, I've gotten that quite a few times. Do you like hearing that? 
It doesn't bother me. I like it. I like him. I like Anthony Edwards. I think I've heard it enough times that I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Anthony Edwards. Blah 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 blah. I think he's a handsome guy. Um, who's the hunk of the film? You think? Well, oh, that's another little tidbit. Okay, speaking of who's the hunk of the film, another little tidbit from the making of where Val Kilmer makes that joke about how he got no close-ups during the... Um, beach volleyball scene, yeah. Beach volleyball scene, and he's kind of joking. Because I guess the the shots that were the close-ups got overcooked. Like the, in the developing process, yeah. In the developing process of the film. And he, you know, is making a joke that, like, Tom went in and overcooked the developing and, um, you know, fucked up Val's shots so that he could get all the, you know, glamour shots because Val was looking too sexy or whatever. Anyway, that tidbit's funny. But you asking who the hunk of the film is, I was thinking, well, it can't really be Val because we don't really ever get to see a, a good Val body shot. Well, maybe in that shot that I was talking about earlier when they're, like, in the locker room. But, I mean, Tom looks great. I mean, you know, honestly, the guy who gets, like, the best glamour hunk hunk boy body shot is val's val's real rick rosovich who, yeah. who has some great tidbits in the making of too just talking about him being like basically just like a fucking frat boy on set and just like fucking around and partying and raging and drinking and he gets thrown off the aircraft carrier at one point yeah. for sleeping in like a captain's bunk or something like that you know what I mean? he was saying he was sleeping in a bunk they had a man he saw like a nuclear waste warning sign on the wall because he, he was like next to the reactor so he was like fuck this yeah and so went he slept in somebody else's <laughs> Yeah, that's like, 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 a, like a little, you know, Goldilocks kind of thing. They're like, wait, get the fuck out of my bed. What are yeah, you get doing? the fuck out of my bed, dude. And, and and then he got in trouble the next night. Which I think is just like incredible, like talk, Val talks about this too. He's like, actors have the biggest egos in the world next to rock stars. And then above rock stars is fighter pilots. Yeah, the Biggest yeah, egos in the yeah. world. Because honestly, like, I mean, there is, there is like nothing cooler. Like... Oh, absolutely. You know, like Michael Fassbender, he's a race car driver, which just makes perfect right. sense. Total honk. What, what would a honk want to do? Drive a car really fast. But like the ultimate super mega honks, they fly the planes really fly fast. Fly the planes really fast, yeah. yeah. No, you're right. I don't know. It's one of those things like firefighter or something. That's like, it feels like eternally a profession that's like, you're a honk, you can fuck, you fuck good, you fuck my mom, you fuck my <laughs> sister, you fuck my wife. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's the job interview. <laughs> This is going to be a tough one to cut. That was our Top Gun episode. Hope you enjoyed it, Tom. We enjoyed the film. We enjoy the films of Tony Scott. I do particularly. Next week, we are talking about Color of Money with a guest. Our first guest hopefully brings some fresh new energy. And it's a movie of mine that I really, really fucking love. It's a movie of Parker that he's never seen, which is crazy. What a madman. I love him nonetheless. Honestly, guys. I'd like to talk to Tom and the listeners for a moment. I love Parker. I love him so much. He's my best friend. And he's smiling right now. He's got such a cute smile. He's such a handsome guy. Did you guys see the pictures of him when he was a little kid uh, playing football? He was so handsome. Anyway, we're having lots of fun, and this is a labor of love for us. And look, we're not doing this for anybody else but Tom, but we do want it to be the greatest podcast in the world in the same way that Tom Cruise is the greatest movie 
movie star in the world. So, you know, for our listeners out there that aren't Tom, we know that there are some of you, even though, as we say over and over again, we don't care about you. We just care about Tom. But nonetheless, to get to Tom, we have to go through a lot of plebeians such as yourselves. So if you're listening and you've got friends and you've got family and they like Tom Cruise or they like movies or they like beer or they like sadness or they like homoerotic friendships, then maybe you should suggest the podcast to them and get the word out there about the podcast, about this beautiful adventure me and my best friend are going on. So we hope you come back. We hope you bring more people to the party. (laughs) And um, of course, follow us on all social media where we made it for Tom on all social media, even though the podcast is called We Made It For You. That's the name of the podcast. But on social media, we are We Made It For Tom. The email is we made it for Tom at gmail.com. It rhymes. So easy to remember. Reach out to us. Send us your love. Follow us on all the socials. We're on threads. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're supposedly on Reddit, but I haven't been on there in years. I don't know what's going on on there. It's a bunch of pedophiles and perverts, as far as I know. We're excited. We're having fun. We're we're about to be getting into some great movies, and we hope Tom comes back every week to listen. We hope you guys are coming back every week to listen. This is a podcast about friendship. This is a podcast about love. I love Tom. I love Parker. And they're both my friends, and they're both my lovers. In a platonic sense. Thank you, of course, to Parker Smith, my co-host, Sam Robinson, our wonderful producer, Trevor Dowdy, for our theme music. Anyway, I had a great time. We'll see you guys next week. Bye.